Shepherd says, I'm doing more than just simply listening passively to a sermon. Uh, let me encourage you to engage the text and to engage this sermon uh, with your Lord. This is God's word. Fellowship with them around it um, as we fellowship w- with him. I'll be reading 18 through 25, though we've been on the entire chapter. Um, Lord willing, this will be the last week we're on this uh, um, uh, section. Um, of Luke 1. And, uh, um, but this is God's word. And as it is God's word, let me invite you out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's word to stand together with me. Hear now the word of our king. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the, and the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when, the, when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. And the people were waiting for Zacharias, were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, He was unable to speak to them, and they realized that what he had seen was a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself secluded for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Now, Lord, give your people, give us grace to abide by it, to feast upon it, to dialogue, to engage in the dialogue that is part and parcel of reading your word where we hear it and we struggle with what it means and how it applies and what difference it ought to make in our lives. Lord, we pray, give us the grace now to boldly engage in this. And thus, Lord, we pray, grant us unction. Grant us the ability to see things we have not seen and may it move us, genuinely move us from the inside out that we might trust you more, O Lord, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might profess you and walk with you and serve you and honor you. Lord, we pray these things under your glory and namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Most, if not all of you, know the story of King David and his sin with Bathsheba and his uh, subsequent attempts at hiding his sin and covering it up. And then Nathan, the prophet Nathan coming, I picture it in the court where he's judging the end of the peoples. So a court filled with a lot of people. And Nathan coming up and telling him a story which he's passing off as as if it's real because it is real, but not in the way that he's telling it. He said, there were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a great man, a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock of his own herd to prepare for, what, for, for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb 
and prepared it for the man who had come to him. That was the story. And David hearing this, believing this to be true, which it was, became indignant. And he said, I'm essentially not in my kingdom. As the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. And he was right. God's word testifies throughout. Summarize Romans 6, 23a. The wages of sin is death. If you and I sin, we deserve to die. So David was right on to say, that man deserves death. And at that moment, Nathan said, thou art the man, right? But David didn't die. We know that. We know from scripture that God gave him grace. God gave him favor. God forgave him. Right? We know this. Scripture teaches there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We know because of, of God's saving grace, the wages of our sin, Christ paid for. We don't have to die for him. So that's a wonderful relief and a wonderful, glorious truth. However, there's a lot more scriptures and, pa- and, and passages in scripture which... Um, contain a testimony of God's people sinning and God killing them. Uzzah, for example, in 2 Samuel 6. Uzzah was a Kohathite charged with the transportation of the ark. He placed on a cart, which is a violation of the Kohathite laws. And when the ark hit a bump, or when the cart hit a bump, the ark started to tip, uh, totter. And Uzzah reached out to study that ark, lest it fall off and get dirty on the, on the ground. But because Uzzah made the fatal error of thinking that the ground would make the ark more dirty than the touch of human hand, he touched it, and we read from Scripture, 2 Samuel 6, And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and the God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died there by the ark. What? That's a shock. You think of, of Nadab and Abihu. You think of, of Achan. You go, well, that's all Old Testament. New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, believers of God, servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, in their sinfulness, they conspired uh, together to lie to the apostles. And they lied. And in response to that, Peter spoke these words. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who who heard it. Then later, his wife came in three hours later. And they said, hey. And she didn't know about her husband. They said, hey, is is this what happened? Did did you guys do exactly what the man said? And uh, Sapphira said, uh, she said, yes. Exactly. So she uh, continued lying. And then we read, and she fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Brother and sister, what's going on with these passages? These people are servants of the Lord. They know Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. David didn't die even though he deserved it, yet these people did. What is going on? You read passages like that, and they can disturb you a little bit as God's people. And they ought to. But that's why I'm so grateful for Luke 1, because this passage before us this day helps us make heads and tails 
about what is going on in those passages. Recall Luke here is giving us another a prologue, just like John, as our, in our study of the life of Jesus Christ. And this prologue, this preface, is given to frame our minds and frame our thinking as we approach the story of Christ, the life of Christ. Every account that we read, we're to read it through the lens of John 1, that that being is God Almighty from, from eternity past. And then Luke 1, that this moment, what, what's going on, is the fulfillment, the consummation of all of God's redemptive promises. And we see that in Luke 1 because Luke doesn't say that, but he shows that. Remember that? He writes in a chiasm, I'm reviewing here, and uh, the focus, the center of that chiasm is verses 13 through 17, where he's declaring that what was going on and what was about to take place was in fulfillment of God's redemptive program. And so we understand this prologue, this preface to the birth of John the baptizer, is an important lens that we that we take on, that we go, that we understand that all that we read from this point on, God is bringing to pass the promise he made in Genesis 3.15 and throughout the Old Testament about Christ. And thus we're in the age of Christ and we're still in that age, right? This day, this age is the age that began with Jesus Christ and will end when he comes back. So we're in this climactic point of redemptive history. We are today and it began back in Luke chapter 1. Now what's neat about this chiasm is while the focus is the fulfillment of God's eternal redemptive program, Nevertheless, the parts of this chiasm, the A and A prime, B and B prime, the parts before it and after the center part of this chiasm flesh this glorious truth out. And what it fleshes it out with is that God brings, about, brings to pass his eternal redemptive program through broken vessels like you and me. Right? That was last week's. We're on the uh, third, the, whatever, the, the fourth backstory, and that is the human backstory. We saw in verse 18, as I read it, when Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, this is how God's bringing to pass his redemptive work. Zacharias receives the word and says, really? Can it really take place? Last week we looked at this. We, and I hope we, we drew much comfort from the knowledge that as godly and as righteous as this man was, look at verse 6. Walked with God in the eyes of the Lord. He was blameless. This man was a man of God who understood God's word because he walked according to it. As, as, as devout as this man was, he's not a superhero, brothers and sisters. He's a wretched sinner like you and me. So as bad as you may think you are, guess what? You have confidence here. God uses broken vessels like you and me. However, that raises a potential problem. And that is, if God works through broken vessels, does that mean brokenness is not a big deal to him? Does that mean sin is not a big deal to him? So this, this um, pericope, this section, this um, backstory, the human backstory, is this full orb presentation that, yes, God uses broken vessels. But notice the next points. But these broken vessels ought not to be content to stay in their sin. Right? Notice with me the second point. This morning, we'll pick it up now where we left off, verse 19. The ultimate offense when it comes to our sin, verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. 
who stands in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring to you this good news. The Greek word literally is gospel. I'm bringing to you, this is the beginning of the gospel presentation of Christ. I'm bringing to you this uh, gospel. Now here, once again, Luke is showing it rather than saying it. By virtue of the three uh, um, essential statements he makes in this verse, he's showing us something very important. Now, look at it and notice it. We'll pick it up with the very first phrase. He says, I am Gabriel. That's in the emphatic position in the Greek. So there's a comparison here. Gabriel says, you're going to have a child. God's answered your prayers. You're going to have a child, and that child's going to be a savior, a servant, or a precursor of Jesus Christ. And what does Zachariah say? I'm a man. How can this be? I am a man. The contrast is, Gabriel says, hey, but I am Gabriel. Do you see it? It's a huge contrast. And his statement is, I am Gabriel. We know who Gabriel is. We've talked about this. Gabriel is the messenger of God. He's of the class, the angelic class of messenger of the Lord. Therefore, he is, he is, he is bringing the word of God. In essence, he's saying, thus says the Lord. I am man, but I am Gabriel, the spokesman of God. Thus says the Lord. Incredible statement. Okay, I am Gabriel, but he doesn't just stop there. Notice the next phrase, who stands in the presence of God. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a, there's a biblical background to that expression. You got to go all the way back to, to where the office of prophet was created, instituted, Moses. And with Moses, God gave this institution, which we call the prophetic office. But of all the prophets that ever lived, Moses had the exalted privilege of speaking to God, not via dreams or visions, but speaking to him um, as a man speaks to his friend, right? Exodus 33. And it came about whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. So Moses, from this point on, would become the prototype of a prophet. Unlike all the other prophets, he spoke to God face to face. But you know what's amazing about that? He wasn't satisfied. He wanted more. He didn't want to speak to a theophany, a manifestation of God in a tent, he wanted to see God as he really was and receive the word of the Lord from God as he really was. So he, he came to God and said, God, show me your glory. Exodus uh, 33, I pray thee, let me see who you are. Let me receive the word of God directly from who you are. No longer theophanies. I want to be in your presence in receiving your word. And what does God say to him? You cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Brothers and sisters, if we in our fallen state, in this fallen world, saw God for who he is, we would die. Right? So Moses could not do that. Moses had an exalted relationship with God as a prophet. He spoke to God as a man speaks to a friend. The prophets didn't do that. The rest of them, they, 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 they got God's word through, through visions and dreams. But Moses, as face to face, with the theophany. But it wasn't what Moses wanted. It was less than what it could be. Well, brothers and sisters, when we get to Gabriel, 
Do you understand what, what this statement, what he's making here, this statement? I am Gabriel, who much more than Moses ever dreamt, stand in the presence of God to receive the message of the Lord. And then he goes on, verse at the end, he says, um, and I have been sent to speak to you, verse 19, and to bring to you his, this good news. Brothers and sisters, Gabriel is making such an incredible statement. He's saying, Zacharias, you thought you were talking to an angel, a creature. But you, your response, your, I'm sorry, your, you thought your response was to an angel, a creature, when in reality, your response is to God. So when you questioned whether or not what I just said, what God just said is going to happen, you are doubting God. You are calling God into question. Brothers and sisters, let the scales come off your eyes at this point. I'm sure they did to Zacharias. We have this idea so often that our horizontal sin is horizontal, right? Insignificant sins. Brothers and sisters, we learn from this principle or from this passage, an incredible principle. Every sin we ever commit horizontally ultimately is against God. That's what you see here. Gabriel's saying, you didn't disobey me. You didn't question my words. You questioned the word of Almighty God. Incredible. And you see this theme throughout Scripture. Listen to God's word. Psalm 51.4, after David committed his sin with Bathsheba, after he was uh, confronted by Nathan, he confesses in Psalm 51. And what does he say? Against thee, speaking to God, against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David understood that every sin you commit horizontally ultimately is against God. Remember Acts chapter 5, verse 4. I just read about it, Ananias and Sapphira. What did the apostles say to Ananias? You did not lie to man. You lied to God. Wait a second. They were lying to the apostles. Brothers and sisters, every sin you commit is ultimately against God. If you lie, you're lying to God. If you're mean, you're being mean to God. If you're doubting, you're doubting God. Right? Um, that is a biblical principle. All sin, all sin is against God. And thus we read in Luke 15, the statement of the prodigal as he's planning to go home and be reconciled with his dad. Remember what he says, I will get up, go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I've sinned against God. W.S. Plummer wrote, we never see sin aright until we see it against God. All sin is against God in the sense that it is his law that is broken, his authority that is despised, his government that is set at naught. Pharaoh, Balaam, Saul, Judas, each said, I have sinned. But the returning prodigal said, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And David said, against thee, thee only have I sinned. According, brothers and sisters, as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as servants of the Lord, just like Zacharias, as servants of the Lord, as we minister in God's kingdom, let us recognize that every sin we commit is against God, which means, hear this, every sin is eternal because the, def the definition of a sin, what makes a sin a sin, is that which is sinned against. If God's an eternal being, then every Sin we commit is an eternal offense requiring an eternal sacrifice, which is why Jesus Christ died. 
Every sin. Now, why this is important, brothers and sisters, is so God uses broken vessels. So you know what? I'm a broken vessel. Of course I'm going to mess up. To err is human. It's not a big deal. Why are you so upset, wife? Why are you so upset, mom and dad? Why are you so upset at these small, insignificant things? We need to realize from this passage, God is indeed uses broken vessels like you and me, by through which he brings about his eternal redemptive purpose. But, but every sin we commit is massive. It's huge. Don't take sin lightly. Zacharias, don't take it lightly. And because it's so huge... We understand God's response to Uzzah, Nadab and Abihu, um, Achan, Ananias, and uh, Sapphira. We understand that. That's justice. That's right. So the question is, and this is a huge one, Zacharias in the temple of God, before God's presence in that holy place, in essence said, God, I disagree. You can't do what you just said. You're lying to, uh, to me. What would God do with Zacharias? What does God do with his servants who sin? Does your sin, should you, when you sin, go, God's going to get me? Should you look, look, you know, look for that hand that's going to come down and get you when you and I sin? What should our response be? Notice the consequence. Verse 20 through 22. Because of Zacharias' doubt, Gabriel related the consequences for his disbelief in saying, And behold, you're never going to believe this. You shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when, th- when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which shall be fulfilled in their proper time. So first and foremost, let's begin by recognizing Zacharias, there was no condemnation. And by way of footnote, Uzzah was not condemned Nadab and Abihu were not condemned. Achan was not uh, condemned. Ananias and Sapphira were not uh, condemned. They may have lost their lives, but they were not uh, condemned. So there is no condemnation. When you and I, as God's people, sin, you don't have to worry, is the foot going to drop, is the shoe going to drop next? We don't live like that. We are servants of the Lord, forgiven by by grace, Uh, called and equipped to serve God, whether it be husbands, wives, wives, husbands, parents, children, workers, the whole bit. Brothers and sisters, we are servants of the Lord God High, and based on last week's uh, uh, discussion or sermon, we are servants of God Most High through which God interfaces with this world. Indeed. So we know that. So therefore, in light of that, what was the consequence for Zachariah's sin? Notice with me the result. That part of Zacharias' body, which was used to sin against God, his mouth. Notice God cut off that part for a season. This is an illustration of Matthew 18. Listen to it. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into the fiery hell. The passage before us is an illustration of that. Right? In the process of sanctification, what are we called to do? Not literally cut off our hands. Zacharias' voice box was not cut out of his throat. God simply muted him for nine months and eight days. 
Okay, he's simply muted. So he didn't cut it out. Well, then what, what did happen? Brothers and sisters, in sanctification, if we're, the idea of cutting off your hand is when you and I are bored, what, what, when we're burdened, when we're bored, when we're, when we're worried, where do our hands reach? Do they fold in prayer and ask God for his grace? Or do they reach for alcohol to medicate your burdens? Do they reach to the clicker to escape life? Do they reach for the mouse to gaze upon things you ought not gaze? Brothers and sisters, Matthew 18 saying, cut, if, the, if you're doing things to compensate, to, to uh, um, endure, to live in this world that lead to sin, cut those off. If spending time with those friends leads you to sin, cut that time off. If, if, if watching TV leads you to sin, cut it off. Okay, that's the idea here. Brothers and sisters, what did God do? He cut off the voice of Zacharias. You say, I don't understand how that's cut it off. He's a priest. Do you understand that? This man's a priest. And so his sin, get this, did not cost him his soul, did not result in God punishing him. It resulted in him as I'll read it here, in him losing the privilege of using his voice in the kingdom of God for nine months. Now, for you and me, you might go, oh, that wouldn't be so bad. I type on a computer all day. I don't need my voice. This is a priest. Do you know his primary means of ministry was with his mouth? You think a priest sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, that's a small part of his ministry. The primary ministry of a preach of a priest was blessing God, praying, praising, encouraging with his mouth, teaching, equipping the body of Jesus Christ. In fact, you pick it up a little bit more when you see, um, as we'll see, that he finished out his course of ministry there. So he he lost his voice, he went home. No, he lost his voice and he finished his ministry, his course at the temple. Wow, we'll get to that in a moment. So with that, I want you to see this is one of two primary ways that, that God warns us and encourages us about sin. We don't want to willingly sin. We don't want to look lightly upon sin. We don't want to be servants of God that says it's not a big deal to sin. It's only human. We do not want that view. Not only is it a violation against God, but secondly, do you know what sin will cost us? First and foremost, it's not in this passage, but, but elsewhere. First and foremost, when you and I willingly sin, we compromise our ability to know God. Matthew 5, 8, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We've talked a lot about this. You know what's up for grabs when you and I sin? Not our relationship with God, not our good standing before God, not his love for us. When you and I sin, it compromises our ability to have a greater apprehension and understanding of who Christ is. Remember that? We talked a lot about that. When you and I sin, choose to sin, or better yet, when the choice is before us to sin, the choice is I can enjoy the passing pleasure of sin or the pleasure of a deeper relationship with Christ. And those are the options every single time. When I willingly sin, I am saying, I'd rather have this passing pleasure than enjoy this deep, a deeper and abiding relationship with God tomorrow. 
right? The, the pure in heart is the ones who see God. But secondly, the second reason we do not want to indulge in sin as a child of God is that it will it'll restrict our ability to minister and serve in God's kingdom. And we see that in 21 and following. Notice with me in 21. And the people were waiting for Zacharias and were wandering at his delay in the temple. So Zacharias is chosen to do the altar, or to perform the worship by lighting the altar of incense, right? But that culminated in that priest who was chosen to do that, coming out after the time of prayer and giving the benediction. So this is the way it would have worked. He offered the fire. First, his helpers all would have left. He then would have put fire on the altar of incense. The smoke would have risen. He would have immediately fallen down and began praying. And everybody outside would have, been, would have fallen down in silence and began dedicating themselves unto the Lord. That all be praying, Lord, take my life. Take my, take my job. Take this, right? Lord, take us. Just like we did er earlier during the offering. Lord, take us. And then, while they were still bowed, the priest who offered the altar of incense, he would come out and say, rise and receive the benediction of the Lord. And everyone with, everyone's prayer would be stopped and they'd rise and they'd receive the good word from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be, and be gracious to you, right? Receive the benediction of God. In this case, everyone's praying and they're praying and they're praying and they're praying. And pretty soon one starts going, this is inordinately long, right? And you, they start looking up, and I don't see Zacharias coming out. Okay, I'll keep on praying. And then you peek with your eye and go, I don't see him coming out. And pretty soon there's a murmur, a whisper. Where's Zacharias? Where's the priest? And pretty soon that murmur would most likely have spread such that everybody now is distracted from worship because they're wondering, is he dead? Oh, we failed to tie a cord around him, but that's when he go into the Holy of Holies. What happened? What did he do? Is he dead? Is he, it, what's going on? And eventually, notice with me, 22, he comes out. But when he came out, what, he, what we expect him to do, to come out, lift his eyes, and began speaking. He came out and was unable to speak to them, and they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, and, kept making, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So he came out, and he had to look about him about that was odd. And they're like, this is not normal. Has that man seen uh, something? Is that, has he seen a vision? And then rather than raising his hands, which you'd expect, he's moving his hands, gesticulating. They didn't have sign language and they didn't play uh, charades. So this would have been the first time that he's, he's trying to articulate with his hands and he can't go, right? Three words, first word, Four syllables, sounds like they can't do that, right? So he's there just flailing his hands. He's not giving the benediction. Everyone's staring about him, and, and the talk goes throughout. He's seen something. Something profound has happened to this man. And then we read in 23, as a just reference, and it came about when the days of his priestly service were ended that he went back home. Brother and sister, that it says this tells us that Zacharias continued his ministration as a priest. He's there for one week. So however many, was, however many days were left, he continued his ministration as a priest, which would have meant without his voice, it would have been incredibly impaired because that's the primary work of a priest was sacrifice and prayer and teaching, right? So he couldn't sing. 
He couldn't speak. He couldn't declare the glory of God. He, he could give no benedictions. He could not lead the people of God in prayer. There was no, he couldn't share of the most glorious message that God gave after 400 years of silence. First time God spoke after 400 years of silence, this man could not, he could not share it. Then he goes back home. And his job at home would have been to minister and encourage the faith and the service of God's people. He couldn't do that. Back home, he couldn't help them endure the dark days of Herod's reign. He wouldn't have done any. He could not speak of the son of righteousness who's coming with healing in his wings like he will when his mouth is back open. Brothers and sisters, do you understand? Do you see the consequence of Zachariah's sin? It wasn't just losing his voice. It was a retraction in his ability to minister in God's kingdom. So God does use broken vessels. But that doesn't mean we, look, we, we, we take sin lightly. You go, oh, if God uses broken vessels, then I'll continue to be a broken vessel. No, every sin's against God. And secondly, if you and I sin, we're not going to be condemned. But you know what happens? We, rest we restrict our ministries. Let me give you a biblical background for that. 2 Timothy 2. If any man cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master. Brothers and sisters, the implication is this. If you and I do not cleanse ourselves, if you and I take lightly upon our sin, we will not be as useful to the master. McShane wrote these words, How diligently the cavalry officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfection of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as likeness to Christ. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. Truly, brothers and sisters, sin limits our ability to participate in ministry. 2 Samuel 12, David's sin. What was the consequence of David's sin in David's life? It wasn't condemnation. It was restriction of ministry. Listen to 2 Samuel 12. Nathan then said to David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord um, God of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little... I would have added to you many more things like these. David's sin cost him blessing, ministerial blessing. Do you understand that? First Corinthians 6, that's why Paul did what he did. First Corinthians 6, therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and make him my slave, lest possibly having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul did not want to risk having any retraction, any restriction when it came to being used by God in his kingdom. This principle has been a, a, a very sober one in my own life. And, I, and I, I first gleaned it from Proverbs chapter 7. I'm going to read just a little bit here. This is the young man being seduced by a harlot. But you've got to understand this harlot is sin. Okay? This is the poetry, and this harlot is more than just a prostitute. This harlot represents the, 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 fo the false, fake, empty promises of sin. Okay? If I sin, 
If I'm mean, if I do this, I'll get my way. That'll be good uh, for me. And when you and I engage in sin, this is, notice what this text says. With her many persuasions, this is sin. She entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly he follows her as an axe goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know it will cost him his life. And he's not talking about the physical life. We're talking about the quality of his life. Brothers and sisters, this, this passage, this principle has made me say, oh God, take me before I commit sins. I don't want my ministry to my children to be impacted by my dad's the adulterer. My dad is the alcoholic. My dad is the man who can't uh, control himself. Right? And it's not a pride thing. It's not, it's not a, a, a testimony thing. Like, I'm worried about what my kids think about me. It's that I don't want to be a hindrance to my kids. I don't want to be a, a hindrance to my church. I don't want to be a hindrance to my brothers and sisters in the Lord, to my wife, to the people around me. Brothers and sisters, that is what, what Zacharias gave up. For nine months, he gave up the privilege of serving as a priest because of his, what we might call an insignificant sin of doubt. Insignificant. He's in the temple of God. Yeah, but you've got the word of God and you doubt it all the time. And as we saw last week, that's more authoritative than being in the temple receiving the word of God from Gabriel. We got the word of God and we doubt it all the time. We might think, well, that's insignificant. Yeah, but it costs him. So brothers and sisters, yes, God, this glorious prologue, God is, is in Christ bringing to pass the culmination of his redemptive plan and program from eternity past. It began with Christ, which means the eschatological clock is at 11.59, 59 seconds. We're one tick away from the second coming of Jesus Christ. Wow! And he uses an incredible uh, principle, but he plans on using sinful people like you and me. How glorious. But let us not look lightly upon our sin is the idea. Let us not take uh, from this the conclusion, oh, then it doesn't matter if I'm a sinner because God uses sinners. It does matter. It does matter. It won't cause this condemnation. You say, well, what about those passages like Uzzah, Nadab, and Abihu? Real quickly, they were written as a didactic example for us, 1 Corinthians. These things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon the end uh, upon whom the end of the ages has come. Brothers and sisters, those are there to let us understand that that's what every sin, every sin we commit deserves, every sin. If I got justice for the insignificant sin I committed going to church this morning, I would have died. But by God's grace, I didn't get justice. Nadab, by who stand as an incredible testimony, this is what our sin as Christians deserves. But God doesn't give it to us because of Jesus Christ. He could, and he'd be just, but he doesn't. Secondly, they teach us that though we are saved, we are not immune to the consequences which might result on account of our sinful choices. If you commit uh, fornication, you might get a disease called AIDS that will kill you. If you take drugs, you may overdose. If you steal money as a Christian, you may lose your, your job. God does not keep us from the consequences of sin. And lastly, they teach us that there are times when a Christian's sin is so bad that in dealing with it, God takes them home. 
1 Corinthians 11, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, number have, have died. You might say, well, that's not so, so bad. If, I, if God takes me home, that's a great thing. Yeah, but brothers and sisters, a premature death is not a good thing ever. You say, wait, God's sovereign. The number of days are appointed, Psalm 139. True, but there's such a thing as a premature death. How does that fit? I don't know. You're asking the wrong person. This brain can't understand it. But I know this, Ephesians 6, children obey your parents. If you do, you'll prolong your days on the earth. If you don't, your days will be shortened. Wait, how can that be if God is sovereign? Both are true. Okay, so we look at those as, a, as testimonies, as commentaries. This is what our sin deserves. Be careful. But understand, brothers and sisters, more than anything else, the greatest consequence in our lives for sin in our lives is an is a, um, inhibited fellowship with Christ, which is our greatest glory. And secondly, an inhibited ministry to our brothers, sisters, and the Lord, which is our second greatest glory. All right, now we're, we're about ready to wrap this up. I don't want to uh, uh, leave here without 24 and 25 because we're going on to the next uh, section. Just uh, briefly, notice lastly the redemptive backstory. 24. And after these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months. We don't understand this. Most commentaries, that's why this is so short. We, most of my conversations, we have no idea what's going on with this verse. She secluded herself. That's not the biblical practice. That's not the Jewish practice, but she did. And if the rationale is verse 25, then maybe this is why. Notice with me, uh, 25. This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with, uh, with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. Most commentators are saying if this is the rationale, then the reason she secluded herself is because she's been uh, attacked and verbally abused her entire adult life for being barren, because in that day, that was a horrible um, state, implied that you were a horrible sinner. So her barrenness, she didn't want to be pregnant and tell people, I'm pregnant. They'd say, yeah, right. So she didn't want that uh, abuse, nor did she want to continue to hear the abuse. So she kept herself secluded for five months, which typically is the time it takes for a woman to begin showing. That's the commentary stab at this verse. Now, is that right or wrong? I don't know. But we can conclude this from this verse. Notice what she says. She said, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me. This is the redemptive backstory. Brothers and sisters, not only is God working out his eternal purpose of redemption in this world right now, but he's, do, he's using broken vessels whom, and this is our, our theme this day, whom God understands, whom God draws near to and, and, and doesn't despise the weak and the hurting. That's the redemptive backstory. God so loved the, the wicked, wretched, rebellious world, he gave a son. That's the redemptive backstory. God doesn't save perfect people. He comes to the weak and the hurting. In our prayer meeting, as the uh, uh, pastors gathered this past Wednesday or Thursday night for prayer, one of the men said, Lord, thank you that you don't despise our weaknesses. And my first thought was, that's my sermon. It's exactly what's going on here. Brothers and sisters, do you understand? God is bringing about his redemptive program, but he's bringing about in such a way that, um, or, or in that process, he doesn't ignore nor does he forget your struggles. This woman is, in that day, she lives in a small country village, and she's an older woman who's barren. No one would have paid her any mind, but God did. And God pays you mind. 
He sees you in your burdens and, he, and he, he draws near and he, and he lifts them up. So brothers and sisters, we're done with this prologue. But this is the prologue God wants us to frame our thinking, the lens through which we read all of the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ, the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And that, that frame, that lens is this. God is working his redemptive purpose today in this world with you through Christ. He doesn't despise you. He, he's, he weeps, he, he stores your tears in a bottle, Psalm 57. He doesn't despise the brokenhearted. He cares greatly for you. And that being said, he also doesn't want us to look lightly upon our sin, but to say, Lord, take me and use me and let me be used by you for your glory. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for this prologue gives us such an incredible apprehension of what you're doing today in this world. Lord, you are in control of the heart of the king. There's nothing insignificant going on in this world. We know that. But of all the things that are going on, all the things that you are working, more than worrying about elections, more than worrying about um, uh, who's, who, who's getting the glory, more than worrying uh, about um, the next burden of our lives, more than worrying about our health. Father, our hearts and passion should be your, your kingdom, your glory, what you're doing in this world through broken vessels and the opportunities you've given us as these broken vessels to serve you and to serve our brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that you'd enable us to view the world through the lens of Luke. And so, O oh Lord, to allow this to comfort us, encourage us, and direct us as your servants in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's go.